I asked for the roving mic because I, I want to put a picture up and, and use my laser pointer. And I'm a teacher by heart, right? I taught plumbing apprentices for 30 years, and uh, the reason I'm here is because uh, I'm a good friend of Andrew and Chin's, and I go to Andrew's men's Bible study of a Thursday night in Maryborough. So he said, Clive, I want you to come and preach. Is that right, Andrew? <laughs> so good. Anyway, let's open the word, shall we? I, I've been asked to preach on Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 25. So I've been given the subject matter. And so I'll endeavour to teach you from the Word of God. (coughs) Excuse me. So the subject this morning is the justice of God. All right, the justice of God. Let's read Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The justice of God. And that's a text I want to focus also this morning on John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's not many roads up the mountain leading to God. There's only one way, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a legal thing that he had to do to demonstrate his justice in saving mankind. Now you've already, I understand, studied Romans 1 and Romans 2. Romans 1, Paul sets the case, he argues the case logically that all the Gentiles are under sin and are lost. Romans 2, he argues the case that all the Jews are under sin and are lost. And he concludes it all by saying there's none righteous, no, not one. So how are we ever going to get to heaven and to be in the presence of a righteous and a holy God This is what we're going to talk about this morning, how God did it. 
And I'm going to give you scriptures this morning and I'm going to give you the bones. And you're going to study the scripture in the, in the days and years ahead and you're going to flesh these bones out while I give you this morning. But the structure is this. What God did in Jesus Christ is what gets us Jew and Gentile into heaven and in a right relationship with the Lord. Can you show those, uh, those clips on the uh, Acropolis of Athens, please? Viewed from the gateway of the Propylaia, the Parthenon presents the image of a flawless structure. But not one of the visible lines on the building is straight. Ictinius employed these optical illusions so the building would not appear distorted when viewed from ground level. To stop the long sides of the building appearing to sag, Ictinius made them rise up in the middle. The centre is 11 centimetres higher than the ends. At the base, the deviation of the pure horizontal can be clearly seen. We know that the architects of the Parthenon Nor are the columns perfectly perpendicular. They all slope imperceptibly inwards. If the facade were extended upwards 4,800 meters, its columns would eventually meet. The side columns are inclined even further, meeting at 2,400 meters. The corner columns have an extra refinement. They're fractionally wider the extra width compensating for the slimming effect of being silhouetted against the sky. The optical refinements enliven the building. They create a tension between what we expect to see, perfectly straight lines, perfectly straight horizontals, and what we do see, swellings, curves. And this friction, or this tension, between our expectation and what we see uh, adds visual interest, uh, it adds intrigue, it makes this, the, the, te- the temple seem more alive and, and more appealing to our, to our eye. The completed Parthenon is a timeless testament to the genius of Actinius and Callicratus's unique vision. Perfection through deliberate imperfection. Isn't that interesting? That's uh, off a uh, 45-minute YouTube clip on the Acropolis of Athens. Now, uh, the reason I showed you that is because uh, the Acropolis, actually the word means uh, akron, from the Greek highest point. Polis means a city, the topmost uppermost city. And the Parthenon in the Acropolis It was the temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. It was constructed in 447 BC and completed in 438 BC. There was no mortar or cement put in the uh, marble stones. It, it, It was at massive cost. It was a masterpiece of geometry and mathematics and proportion. 
was built of white marble, pure white stone. As you saw on that depiction, there was optical refinements. Not a single line was straight. It was a timeless monument to man's genius. And when I was reading Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones on his commentary on Romans 3, and I agree with him, this passage in Romans 3, 21 to 26, is actually the Acropolis of the Christian faith. The, the refinement, the perfection, the detail, the mathematics, everything in this scripture points to the genius of God, which you're going to see as we continue on. Now, when we read Romans 3, 21 to 26, we read, and I'll summarise these points. Number one, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by grace through the redemption that comes through Christ. Now, how does this happen? Paul says that God presented him, that's Jesus, as a propitiation, King James Version, in the NIV it's atonement, presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. So we can only get to God through faith in Jesus Christ because of his blood that was shed on the cross. And the reason God did it this way was to demonstrate his justice. You see, how can God be a just God when he just says to wicked people who disobey the law, I forgive you, or case dismissed? That's not justice, is it? If somebody does something wrong, then justice has to be meted out on the lawbreaker. So how does God forgive us our sin and take us into heaven, put us into God's family and be just when we're sinners and we're all under sin and we're all falling short of the glory of God? He goes on to say, fifth point, because he had left the sins committed beforehand un punished now that's an interesting line isn't it how did God do that left the sins committed beforehand unpunished what does that mean when I was about 10 or 11 I forgot I forgot the age I used to steal uh, chocolate bars and cigarettes from the local corner shop and uh, anyway the the shopkeeper caught me he took me by the hand and I walked down the street down to my house and uh, knocked on the door. Uh, Mrs Buck, yes. I've caught Clive stealing from my shop. Mum said, uh, David, his name was David Hawking, David, uh, how much has he stolen? And he, and he said, oh, about so much. So Mum got the money and paid him for what I'd stolen. But then I had to wait till Dad come home. <laughs> and then I got another disciplinary action. 
So mum had paid for the cost of what was stolen, but the punishment was delayed. It came later. You see, because mum had paid for what was stolen didn't mean I was necessarily forgiven or didn't mean necessarily that there was right relationship restored. <laughs> so they dared me to doubt some punishment. And can I tell you, I never did that again. Now you've got to understand, you young people, that that us that were born in the in the forties or fifty, we come through the time when we transitioned from grocery stores to super sugar and they put it in a paper bag, right? Or you buy so many biscuits and they lift the biscuit tin open and you know, and you, you've got so many biscuits and then we as kids would go in and buy thruppence worth of broken biscuits, right? Everything was in the in bulk, see? And then we come to the supermarket with everything's laid out for you to take. Mind you, we had to pay for it at the checkout, but it was there for you to take. So as a kid, you know, I can understand the temptation. But anyway, we never did that again. So this is the point. The law had been broken. Someone had to pay. But there was also anger involved. Mum paid the cost of the items, but Dad was angry for the sin. Hey, the family's name was tarnished, wasn't it? And that had to be appeased. Now, the word propitiation carries the meaning of appeasing anger as well as paying the price. So in some of the Bible translations, when it talks about atonement, there is... Atonement is paying the price. But the word propitiation carries a bit more than that, right? It carries this appeasing the anger element. Now, God is angry with the sinner. That was already mentioned this morning. God is angry. Sin has separated us from God. God is angry with the sinner. John 3.36 says, Jesus said... Uh, John says in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're under wrath. Paul argued that in Romans 1. He argued it in Romans 2, and it applies. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're under the wrath of God. So how does God deal with sin and wrath and at the same time be just and holy? The answer is in verse 25. God demonstrated his forbearance for he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Think about it. You've done wrong but dad's yet to come home. You're waiting to receive the wrath of the Father. So, God had a plan. And this, I believe, is how he did it. If you look up, and I'm going to read quite a few scriptures here, so I'll get you to follow with me if you can. Otherwise, you'll listen to the tape later. 
Luke 4, 18. Luke 4, 18. Jesus starts his ministry. So he stands up in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth and um, he's handed the scroll of the book of Isaiah and he's asked to read. So Jesus opens up Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads this. Starts right here. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, this is Jesus, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he closed the book. What he's done, he's outlined his ministry while he's there on earth. But I want you to notice he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now, who are the prisoners? We, we read that and we think, oh, maybe people bound in sin. Maybe, you know, well, he, he didn't obviously go in and, and open all the jails. So who are the prisoners? Well, let's have a look at, at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 8 to 10. When he ascended on high, he's talking about Jesus and he's quoting Psalm 68 verse 18, the Apostle Paul. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Who were the captives? They were the prisoners. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And it goes on to say, it was he who gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. So he first descended into the lower earthly realms and then he ascended far above all things. If you go to Psalm 68, is what he quoted from, Psalm 68, Now Psalm 68 is a messianic psalm and it's all about the ascension of the Lord Jesus, right? And uh, it's very interesting if you're just on the side before we read verse 18 when he ascended on high, it says in verse 17, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. Sinai was where the law was given. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary, into heaven. He's come from from law into grace. Just keep that uh, thought in your mind. So where are the prisoners? Now, if you throw up that uh, diagram on the underworld for me, thank you. Now, this is a diagram. So uh, there's the cross. Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus said... As Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish's belly, so I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus went to this place called paradise. 
Remember he was on the cross and there was two thieves uh, crucified either side of him and one mocked him and the other one said, told his mate to, uh, to reassess his uh, position. He said, we deserve all we've got. He said, but this man Jesus has done nothing wrong. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, you will be with me this day in paradise. As Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right, and the thief would be with him in paradise. Now, who else was in paradise? Well, there was Abraham, there was Lazarus, there was David, there was Samuel, there was Daniel, there was Job, there was Isaac, there was Jacob, right? All the Old Testament saints were there. Now when you read Luke 16, 19 to 31, we haven't got time to read it this morning, Jesus tells the story of two men, Lazarus and a rich man. Now this is not a parable because real names are mentioned. And Jesus knew of this case because remember Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus knew this. When they argued with Jesus about there was no resurrection from the dead and the Sadducees and all that, he said, I'm the, God is the God of, of the living. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. When you read in the last chapter of First uh, Samuel, you read where, where um, um, Saul is about to go into his final battle on the earth and God hasn't spoken to him, so he goes to the witch of Endor and he says to the witch, I want to, I, I want to talk to Samuel. And, and the witch does all the business. Uh, but then God takes over and Samuel comes up from down below. He comes up. And Samuel says to Saul, why have you disquieted me why have you why have you disturbed me why have you brought me up and then Samuel pronounces judgment on Saul he said tomorrow you will be with me down here remember when David had the uh, got Bathsheba pregnant and then he had his had her husband murdered and then the baby was born, a little boy, and Nathan the prophet said that baby's going to die. And so David fasted and prayed that the child would live, but the baby died. And when the servants come and said the baby's dead, David got up, washed himself, had something to eat. And they said, why are you acting like this, David? You, were, you wouldn't eat, you were praying and all that while, you, while the baby was sick and then now the baby's died. You said, he said, David said, I can go down to him down to him but he cannot come up to me what was happening here all these people in here could not get into the presence of God up here because sinless blood hadn't yet been shed on the cross of Calvary all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God And Paul teaches us in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse away the sin, it can only cover it. 
So it's only covered. It's not cleansed away. So we cannot get into the presence of a holy God, right, with sin not cleansed away. So God has deliberately overlooked, not cleansed it away, he's deliberately covered it. All the, the blood of bulls and goats and all that that was in the Old Testament, right, was, uh, was, was a covering, it was a delaying of the eventual punishment that was to come upon sin. God was deliberately overlooking it. Why? To demonstrate his justice. God is going to do something that demonstrates his justice. He cannot allow us into his presence unless our sin is cleansed away, not just covered. Now, when when um, in the book of Acts, we'll go to... Um, We'll go to Acts chapter 2, 25 to 28. You get a Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Right? Now, when Peter's arguing the case that Jesus has resurrected from the dead, he's talking to Jews and Jewish proselytes. These were people that were converted to Judaism. So they knew their Old Testament. And so when Peter starts preaching he says to them um, he says in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2 he says brothers I can tell you confidently that the patriarch uh, David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. Now, what did Peter quote? He quoted Psalm 16, 8 to 11. He said, David said this, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices my body also will live in peace because you will not abandon me to the grave right now the word grave there in the Hebrew was Sheol I don't know whether I've written it there or not anyway it was Sheol but when it's translated in here in Acts it's Hades, or the Greek word Hades, there. So Sheol and Hades were the same place. And, Paul, and Peter was arguing, he said, David's bones are with us today. David has seen corruption. But he was prophesying about Jesus that his body would not see corruption, but that his body would rise from the dead and he would be resurrected. And this resurrection we have seen and we have witnessed. And so from that logic, quoting of the Old Testament, and those people understanding that, they put up there and said, yes, we will be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people were saved that day. What did Peter do? It wasn't an emotional sermon. It was a, a pure logical uh, exposition of the scripture. 
And out of that, those people made a logical decision to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm trying to share with you this morning is the justice of God has done it in such a way that your Christianity and your belief is not based on an emotional experience and not on I feel like it or I'd like to be a Christian or I'm a Christian because mum and dad were or because I was born in a particular church or country. It's not that. Your, your salvation depends on God outworking this in such a way that his justice and his holiness is preserved but he's able to cleanse your sin away and bring you into his family and into heaven. You see, when Jesus rose again from the dead, it says in Matthew 27 that many of the saints which slept arose, right? And appeared in Jerusalem unto many. That's actually in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the, the first fruits of the resurrection. And so they went, when Jesus rose again from the dead, they ascended, all these here, that were locked in here, the captives that were locked in here, Paul said, he ascended into heaven and he took them in his train. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4, when he had that possibly out-of-death experience, Paul says, I saw a man, right, in the, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, I don't know, caught up into paradise. Up into paradise. Paul says in, in, the, in these letters, he said, if I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. Up in paradise. This place is now empty. And it's empty because Jesus Christ has cleansed away the sin. He is the atonement, he's the substitutionary sacrifice. Our sins were nailed on the tree with Jesus. And this passage in Romans 3 says we are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go over to, uh, let's let's look at... um, uh, Let's look at John 20:17. We'll go there first. John 20:17. This is their resurrection morning, and uh, Jesus appears to Mary in the garden. And Jesus says, "Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father." Go instead to my brothers and tell them. Why did he say, you ever thought about this? Don't hold me. Because Jesus is ascending into heaven to place his blood on the ark of the covenant in heaven. Let's have a look at Hebrews 9 verses 11 to 13. Now I've got a model here. When we're in Israel, right? I bought one of these. This is a model of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Uh, it was a, a wooden box covered inside and out with gold. And on the top it was a lid 
And on that lid was two cherubim with their wings outstretched, touching, they're supposed to be touching. And in the middle of that was what was called the mercy seat. Inside the ark was the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone, written by the finger of God in the box. Also a little pot of manna and also the, the, the rod that budded that signified that Aaron was to be the high priest. Right? Now that was in the box, in the lid. Once a year, Aaron, the high priest, would go in with blood, the blood of a bullock, and he'd put it on the mercy seat. The blood covered the law. Now, you go to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. We're going to read 11 to 13. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of, of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, that's in heaven, once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Go across to verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. See, in the, in the most holy place, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, they were only a copy of what was already in heaven. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So don't touch me. Jesus is about to perform the ministry of the great high priest, putting his blood on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, which is over the law. The law condemns, but the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Why did God do that? To establish his righteousness, his justice. He has temporarily overlooked that until the time come when the sinless lamb of God would shed his blood on that cross of Calvary and through the resurrection, as Peter said, you will not leave my soul in hell, nor the way in Sheol, nor will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And then Christ arose again from the dead and he set the captives free. What a wonderful salvation. Conclusion. God is just. His justice is intact. The law was satisfied. The price was paid. And sin was dealt with legally. 
Like the Acropolis, it was legal, it was exacting, mathematically, optically perfect. It was the peak accomplishment of God's plan of salvation. And that's why there is only one way to be saved, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is legal, this is logic, this is just, this is not emotion. We have to, to be saved, to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you just bow your heads please for a moment. I don't know any of you guys, I'm just a visitor from from Maryborough. So I don't know where you stand in your relationship with with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've shared with you from the word of God and from the historical fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's only one way to be saved. And that's to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm asking you this morning to play the man and to play the woman. If you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life and you want to be cleansed of your sin and go to heaven and have eternal life, would you put your hand up? I'm asking you. Peter on the day of Pentecost when he preached on the resurrection of Jesus, he said, repent and believe. And people said, what do we do? Repent and believe. Commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody here has never committed their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know you're not saved. You know if you died tonight, you would not go to heaven. Your sin weighs upon you. You know, and you think, how can I be clean? God's made a way. He's made a way. Justice through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody here this morning want to give their life to Jesus? Anybody want to recommit their life to Jesus? You thought, well, you know, I've messed up, Lord. I've just gone astray. I just don't know where I'm going. What's the answer? God has the answer. He's made a way. Anybody like to recommit your life to the Lord Jesus? You see, when I when I make an appeal like this at church, I I sort of don't because I believe that if Jesus publicly was nailed to a cross, sinless, unjustly tried, nailed to a cross for us, then we should be able to publicly acknowledge him as our Lord and Saviour. If we honour him before men, he will honour us before his Father who is in heaven. So that's why I say, you know, make a stand, stand up, make a stand.